Welcome to another Psych Matters podcast from the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists. Psych Matters is a series of discussions on training and practice issues facing trainees and fellows of the college. Borderline personality disorder is a very important area where there is not only a lot of distress, but also a loss of quality of life and shortening of life. In this episode of Psych Matters, Dr. Nick Bendit joins other experienced clinicians to discuss the nuts and bolts of working with the patient with VPD and to try to explode some of the myths. Some listeners may find this topic confronting. If you are worried about your own or others' well-being, you can find crisis contacts on the RANZCP's Your Health in Mind website. Hi, my name's Nick Bendit and I'm a psychiatrist working at a specialty psychotherapy service uh, that is run by Hunter New England Public Health. And we manage patients with borderline personality disorder. And that's the topic for today is how to manage borderline personality disorder. Because in my work with my colleagues, with the service, with consultants, with trainees, uh, it's an area that often brings up a lot of angst and difficulty about how to manage Uh, what are seen as difficult clients. Now, I think that often that's the the prevailing assumption that these clients are particularly difficult. But I think the, I'd like to turn it around a little bit and say that I think the usual thing that we do for patients with borderline personality disorder, the kinds of things we do in psychiatry, such as medication management, community mental health teams, hospitals, etc., generally don't change the trajectory of this disorder and are mutually frustrating uh, for us and for the clientele. However, if you can understand where these problems come from, what the etiology is, uh, and then the principles of management become clear, and that's what I hope for this podcast today, that in simple terms and easy to understand and implement uh, principles that it'll make life easier for you in managing your patients with borderline personality disorder. I've worked at this publicly funded outpatient psychotherapy unit called the Centre for Psychotherapy in Newcastle. Originally when I joined, we only offered dialectical behaviour therapy or DBT, but we realised that that wasn't really enough. So we added conversational model, an adapted psychodynamic model, and more recently we've been doing groups of schema therapy, uh, another model that sort of sits halfway between psychodynamic and the CBT-derived DBT. Um, And we offer about one to two years of psychotherapy for free, and this is once to twice a week. And we've just published the second largest RCT Uh, for the outcome in treatment of borderline personality disorder comparing DBT and conversational model. However, uh, that's my experience, but I'd like to introduce uh, Sacha Rao and Joe Beardson from uh, Spectrum uh, Personality Disorder Service from Victoria, who are experts in the field. Uh, Can I first start with you, Joe? Welcome to this podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and your interest in this area? Yes. Well, thank you, Nick. I've been fascinated by borderline personality disorder since I trained as a psychiatrist. And uh, I've had the great um, privilege of working uh, with Spectrum for around 20 years, virtually since it began. to further develop that interest and further understand, uh, promote understanding and treatment, um, particularly psychological treatment, obviously, of BPD, um, through that work. And, um, yeah, so I just guess it's, it's, for me, it's one of the most fascinating and also rewarding um, areas of work. Uh, for a psychiatrist. Hmm. Yeah. Thank you. That That's certainly been my experience too. And I just want to add to that, that people often say to me, why do you work with such a difficult 
uh, patient population. And I say, actually, no, I find the work with them rewarding and fascinating. And surprisingly, often people change very quickly. And I think that's a little known uh, fact. Uh, Satya, um, welcome to this podcast. Can you tell us also a little bit about your background and your interest in the area? Uh, thank you, Nick. I have been working with uh, uh, people with borderline personality disorders for the last uh, 15 years. And uh, Joe, uh, Joe Bitson is the person who inspired me to uh, work with people with borderline personality disorder and taught me everything that I know about borderline personality disorder. Uh, my job satisfaction has never been better. Um, I would not trade this for anything. Patients get well and they remain well. So uh, I, I thoroughly enjoy working with the people with personality disorders. Thank you, Satya. Um, so I'm glad I introduced Jo first because she taught you everything you know. Um, <laughs> okay. So Jo, uh, and I think this is the underpinning of the whole talk. Can you briefly tell us a little bit about what causes borderline personality disorder? And, and not so much in technical terms, but more in, in, in terms that, that help us really come to the heart of the difficulty and how, it, how, how this, these patients end up with such disabling and difficult lives. Hmm. Yes, certainly. Well, um, I think the cause, uh, the things that lead to the development of borderline personality disorder begin at birth. I mean, there's inborn factors of temperament, genetics in other words. Most people with borderline personality disorder are born with very sensitive, anxious temperaments that um, interact with the early environment, uh, in other words, the parental responses to them, often with the result of insecure attachment. Um, and I have never seen someone with borderline personality disorder who didn't have an insecure attachment. Um, and uh, sometimes, as we are all well aware, uh, as childhood goes on, there is additional trauma, um, either sexual, emotional, physical um, as well, which adds to the problems that are already there by insecure attachment. Now, what this means in terms of our work is that people with BPD have great difficulty trusting us. They can't easily trust us. And we have need to in, uh, work with them in such a way to encourage trust. And uh, I know, Nick, you're going to uh, talk about that uh, in, in, in much more depth, so I won't go into it. But I think insecurity of attachment and the problems that come with that are the core deficit, really. Thank you, Joe. So that leads me into talking a bit about what are the what are the core principles of how to manage uh, patients with borderline personality disorder. Based on what Joe says, as as I think she highlights beautifully, trust is is a fraught and difficult experience, and because of the early caregiving difficulties. What these clients have learned all their life, in fact, what they know to be implicitly true in their being, in their heart, is that uh, caregivers don't really respond, or if they do respond, they don't understand. And so they're left terribly alone, uh, feeling terrible feelings all by themselves, and not knowing who to, to reach out to. In fact, reaching out to people is often anathema to them or at least at the very best, very fraught. So there's a terrible dilemma about whether they should reach out to us and anyone else or whether they should stay alone. Reaching out to us risks getting hurt again, which they expect, and staying alone uh, is unbearable. So they're in a terrible, terrible dilemma, which explains why often the contact with our patients with borderline personality disorder, at least in the beginning and often in in emergency departments and in uh, community mental health teams is so haphazard and fraught and difficult on both sides. 
because they really don't know whether we're going to help them or hurt them. They expect we're actually going to hurt them. So as a consequence, um, they have to learn how to manage uh, their feelings by themselves, and that doesn't work. And the ways they do that is that they hurt themselves to try and uh, make themselves feel better, or they dissociate and zone out, or they get into terrible arguments with other people, or they use drugs and alcohol, or sex, or anything that can try and make them feel a bit better, uh, but without reaching out to somebody. So because of this this gulf between us and them, we have to be more than neutral. Uh, we, we have to be caring and open and emotionally available with this clientele uh, in the sense that we have to be able to reach out and try and understand what their emotional experience is, but in an emotionally authentic way, not in a pretend way or a professional way. I'm not saying that we should drop out professionalism, but what I am saying is the human connection between us and them is critical. Uh, and so we need to be able to uh, uh, understand what it is they're experiencing, particularly what it is they're feeling. In their families, almost always, if not always, uh, the understanding emotions and how to deal with emotional situations and how to get help with emotionally challenging situations has not happened or has been damaging. And so the very basic, uh, my, my basic uh, uh, principle is that I need to understand their situation from the point of view of how they feel. Then uh, I have to, without judgment, I have to be able to figure out with them why they're feeling this way and make sense of often what is chaotic and overwhelming feelings. And that is difficult for them because no one's ever done that for them before. So it's, it's at best a new experience and at worst a frightening and difficult one. So they're the principles in my, in my book, uh, being caring and warm and open, uh, being emotionally focused, figuring out the emotional experience with them and helping them to understand their situation uh, from the context of what's happened recently and what's happened in the past and how that's impacted on their emotional situation. Now, that brings me to deliberate self-harm, which is a, an area that, as Joe pointed out to me, causes a great lot of angst uh, for clinicians and uh, is, is a very difficult part, whether you're working in, in a general practice or a private psychiatry or, or a... a um, emergency department or a community mental health team or an inpatient unit, the, the possibility of severe deliberate self-harm and the possibility of suicide is usually the thing that frightens us the most. There are myths. I, I quite often do a talk for the emergency departments and I always ask the, the emergency department physicians, why do borderline patients hurt themselves? Why do they cut themselves, for example? And almost always the clinicians say to get attention. And that actually isn't true. Um, we did a study of 72 patients and we gave them 22 different reasons as to why they hurt themselves. And this is backed up by other studies in the literature as well. And predominantly the reason is to bring down painful and unbearable feelings, affect regulation, usually to reduce fear or anger or shame or distress or despair. Um, there are other reasons, of course, and it's not always that simple. Sometimes it's to punish themselves because they feel bad. Sometimes it's to reduce dissociation, which can be very unpleasant. Sometimes it's a lesser evil. It's, it's to prevent themselves from killing themselves so they'll do a lesser form of hurt that brings down uh, the distress. But almost always the precipitant to this is somebody important to them rejecting them or pushing them, them away, the abandonment sensitivity in the DSM criteria. And, and, this, and, and I would argue that if you look to just about every patient who has hurt themselves, particularly hurt themselves severely or tried to kill themselves, in the previous 24 hours, there will have been an experience of somebody who matters, an attachment relationship, rejecting, 
uh, pushing them away or a perception that they're being pushed away. And and it brings up the, the question of why doesn't that happen for all of our patients? Why does that happen so powerfully for our borderline patients? And it comes about because of what Joe said, that if they don't trust caregivers, they don't have the usual capacity to reach out at times of desperate need, like other patients do and like you and I do, hopefully, when we're in terrible, uh, terrible straits. And so they have to find another way to regulate unbearable feelings. And deliberate self-harm is very powerful and very fast and doesn't risk rejection, at least immediately, from other people, particularly if it's private and hidden, which, funnily enough, most often it is. Again, the myth is that most uh, deliberate self-harm is to communicate, but actually in my experience and studies have shown this, there is much more deliberate self-harm done privately, not for display, than display purposes. So I would like to just uh, just check whether Sacha or Joe, you wanted to add anything to that before we move into some of the more specifics of management. Nick, I have a couple of things to share. Um, uh, I I completely agree with you that uh, often patients uh, with borderline personality disorder uh, uh, either self injure or uh, have suicidal behaviors. Uh, in order to actually survive, uh, Joe Paris has famously written and said that uh, feeling uh, borderline patients, uh, they're, they're, uh, they're, they're feeling suicidal to survive. So it sounds very paradoxical, but it's so true. Uh, in Victoria, uh, we have looked at the uh, coronial data for suicide for people with uh, borderline personality disorder for a five-year period. Uh, we, we found some interesting things. Uh, number one, uh, we are uh, unfortunately, uh, sadly, losing one person with borderline personality disorder for suicide every single week in Victoria alone. And 99% of uh, the patients with borderline personality disorder had gone through mental health services in the preceding one year. And almost 88% of them, the preceding six weeks before uh, suicide. Uh, so there, uh, there, there is op- there are opportunities perhaps for us to uh, do something and try our best in the context of mental services. Thank you, Satya. Joe, did you want to add anything to that? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think that I completely agree with everything that has been said. I also love Paris's uh, statement that these patients are often half in love with these full death. I mm. think that's such a mm. vivid, uh, evocative mm. statement which captures um, what Sathya was saying, that mm. sometimes it's it's held onto as a, a way out which helps to keep them alive because yes. it's always there as a, if, if things become impossible. Uh, thank you both for bringing up Joel Paris and his, particularly his book, I think it's 2006 or 2007, Half in Love with Death, which I highly recommend. It's a wonderful book. Um, and he says in that also that the, the borderline patient needs to be heard and cared for. That if any, in any of our responses, uh, and it doesn't matter what our response is as mental health clinicians or any other clinician, if we can in the process of responding, show that we've heard their experience, particularly their emotional experience, and we've shown some kind of responsive caring uh, that is a force for good. That is a that is a little bit of treatment in itself. Quite often the assessment itself, when it's done in a way that makes the patient feel heard and cared for, is actually the treatment. It's more powerful than any medication uh, that is then subsequently uh, uh, prescribed. So um, I'd like to now move on to the main treatments for borderline personality disorder. Uh, Satya, would you like to talk about um, uh, some of those, please? Thank you, Nick. As we all know, um, there are no medicines for borderline personality disorder. There are no medicines which are... Uh, uh, indicated or patented for borderline personality disorder. So that leaves us with uh, psychological treatment. 
However, we have very, very good uh, evidence-based psychological treatments. And uh, uh, those treatments, as we all know, is the dialectical behavior therapy, mentalization-based treatments, and the schema focus therapy, transference-focused psychotherapy, etc., etc. Now, uh, what I would like to talk is about uh, the, the summary or the common factors or the integrated factors which are common to all these uh, treatments, perhaps. Uh, that's what we use at uh, Spectrum, and we find them uh, extremely useful. I'll just go through that list uh, and take a couple of minutes, uh, Nick. Uh, first of all, to make a clear diagnosis of borderline personality disorder and not attaching any primacy to any other co-occurring disorders that may co-occur with borderline personality disorder. Uh, uh, I think Peter Tyler once said that uh, borderline personality disorder is the king of comorbid kingdom. So therefore, uh, we are going to always see other comorbid disorders, uh, such as depression, bipolar disorders, etc. So it is important to note all the comorbid disorders, and particularly the general uh, medical conditions. You know, we find that uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome or chronic pain or uh, uh, obesity, they're all very common with uh, borderline personality disorder. So first is to have a clear diagnosis and differential diagnosis. And do a very thorough psychoeducation to patients and families. Uh, particularly families, they're often left out. It's very important to educate them about the diagnosis, about the kind of treatment that we have, and the, and the prognosis, and how long it is going to take, and what are the challenges that one might come across while we are doing it. And to develop a shared understanding uh, uh, with the patients and with the families, uh, how we understand borderline personality disorder, how they understand borderline personality disorder, and coming come to a common understanding, and preferably to write it down in the form of a formulation. And uh, in our practice, we would actually give it to our patients to actually make corrections and add their own bits so that we both have a clear, shared understanding of what the problem is and how we are going to uh, work with those problems together and how long it might take and uh, what are all the kind of uh, treatment that we need to bring along. And uh, uh, the other thing to do is to be very, uh, uh, have a written uh, treatment plan and a written crisis management plan. Uh, even on day two or day one, even if it is on a literate, uh, to have a, a plan that the patients and the families and us uh, agree upon. Yeah. And and it can we can keep revising the treatment plan and the crisis plan over a period of time. I think that uh, gives them uh, a structure. Uh, it gives them some consistency, and uh, also discusses what can be done, what can't be done, what are the limits. Uh, we talk in terms of compassionate limit setting. So uh, often limit setting is misunderstood, and uh, we we can get a little too enthusiastic about limit setting. So we need to look at a compassionate uh, limit setting, uh, balanced very well with uh, uh, adequate amount of flexibility. And to have a clear focus on non-suicidal self-injuries that you were mentioning a little earlier on, and the suicidal behaviors and how to manage them. And what is the role of medicines, if at all? Uh, what is the role of uh, inpatient admissions? Uh, now who is going to help them out uh, uh, after hours? All of that needs to be uh, clearly understood and written down. And as you were alluding to earlier on, uh, Nick, uh, having a non-judgmental stance and uh, uh, trying to find something to validate always. Often these patients have not received adequate validation. And worse, they're, 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 they're used to often invalidating themselves and teaching them validation skills. Uh, self-validation skills. Uh, in, in very many uh, treatment modalities, we would use uh, mindfulness or the equivalent of mindfulness, uh, helping patients to be in the here and now. Of course, addressing the past. Uh, trauma is very important. Trauma needs to be uh, worked through sensitively. Uh, one needs to have a trauma-sensitive, trauma-informed approach. And uh, Misunderstandings uh, often arise. I think we were again alluding to that earlier on when you're talking about the principles. Misunderstandings will arise uh, during the course of the treatment. If it arises, to be very open, to be willing, to take responsibility ourselves, and also to te teach patients to take responsibility where, it, uh, where, where, where they need to. And helping patients to uh, become aware of their emotions, 
name the emotions if required and to teach uh, emotion regulation skills and uh, it's a given that if you're working with uh, people with borderline personality disorder clinicians will experience emotions too strong emotions often so for us to be self reflective and become aware of our own emotions and metabolize those emotions and if required seek supervision we can't seek supervision at least talk to our colleagues and to get more clarity and self reflection on our own emotional responses uh, teaching skills is very very important skills to regulate emotions skills to manage interpersonal skills uh, skills to understand the minds of others and the behaviors of others and skills to you know work through their self harm and societal uh, behaviors and we need to always keep a focus on the mind not get carried away with the behaviors because behaviors are going to be in the forefront always and that is going to draw our attention but not to get distracted just by the behaviors but to always focus on the mind and we understand what's the what are, what are all the things which are happening in their minds thoughts emotions feelings uh, which is behind the behavior also helping them to understand the thoughts and emotions behind their behaviors and uh, the lastly the uh, to keep an eye on uh, recovery always uh, as john gunderson uh, irreverently but compassionately put it uh, we should get we should help our patients to get a life which is to always focus on uh, getting them to uh, you know, find a job uh, even a part time job even a few hours a week doing something uh, and uh, managing their relationships particularly romantic relationships if they are in if they're uh, having challenges in their uh, relationship their dysfunctional relationship to help them to think through and they're very if they if they're healthy relationships to how to foster uh, those healthy relationships so those are some of the factors some of the common principles that come to my mind thank you satya uh, joe did you want to add anything to that i've got a couple of comments on that as well not off the top of my head nick good okay <laughs> i don't think so Thank you. So just a couple of things, Sacha. Um, when I think of validation, because I, I know that's a term that we often use for those who are in the field, but in, in just to make it clear, in my mind, validation is helping the patient understand that their emotional experience makes sense in some way. Uh, that generally they deal with very strong emotions that they feel don't make sense and mostly around them, people around them, family, friends, lovers, uh, clinicians often don't understand why they're feeling what they're feeling. So validation is this very important uh, transaction between us and them where together we're trying to understand what they haven't been able to understand, which is why they feel this way at this point in time. Even if we don't agree with the behaviors that come out of the feelings, that we try and understand the feelings. The other thing I wanted to comment on um, was the limits. I love the fact that you talked about flexible limits, Satya. When I, when I work with the trainees, often they say, when I ask them, what do you need to do in terms of a frame or limits or boundaries, they usually come back at me and say strict boundaries. And, and that can be actually, for, and it comes particularly out of the old psychoanalytic traditions, I think. Um, and the idea being that strict boundaries provide security. Uh, strict boundaries provide can provide a kind of security, but often it's a cruel or callous security. It makes borderline patients feel very unloved, unwelcome and uncomfortable. So I think we do need to be aware of boundaries, limits, uh, and they are important and they do need to be negotiated with the patient. Uh, but they do need to be flexible. They do need to be human. They do need to be something that both of you can understand, not a unilateral declaration by us. All right, uh, Satya, I'd like you to talk a little bit about medication management. You, you, you touched on that, but in particular with regards to uh, depression, uh, you know, should we be treating um, the depression in borderline personality disorder with antidepressants? Should we be treating the mood instability with mood stabilizers? Should we be treating the auditory hallucinations and paranoia with antipsychotics? Uh, thank you, Nick. Um, 
the first statement I would like to make is that, uh, again, reiterate that there are no medicines for borderline personality disorder per se. Uh, having said that, um, when patients have comorbid conditions, such as depression, for example, um, there's a huge dilemma. Um, I think the most important thing is to uh, ensure that we are indeed making a diagnosis of a clear, uh, independent uh, major depressive disorder, not the chronic dysphoria of borderline personality disorder. That it, it can be very difficult to differentiate. The any number of times I've made a diagnosis of depression and admitted my patients to go and see next day, things are very different. So it's it's also the I, I believe there is something uh, such as a, a concept such as micro depression, similar to micropsychosis. So patients can have. Uh, uh, symptoms, uh, a syndrome complex of depression, which is very akin to clinical depression, but lasts for short periods of time when they are intensely sad. Uh, those sort of depressions don't respond to medications. When patients have clear major depressive disorder, medications can be considered, uh, uh, but we should not probably expect this, uh, the same robust response that we expect from antidepressants for independent uh, depressions. The any number of studies, as you know, randomized control trials to show that. So, by all means, we can, and we, we most of us are probably in practice prescribe antidepressants. No particular choice of antidepressant uh, to, to, for borderline personality disorder. However, uh, the idea is not to expect and not to keep uh, flogging the dead horse and keep changing and chopping medications and adding and going for high doses. It, it doesn't seem to work. Uh, but psychotherapy uh, seems to work. When you do psychotherapy for someone with a depression or borderline personality disorder, that seems to help not only with the, the, the depression, but also for borderline personality disorder. So I would put the money on psychotherapy first, but also add antidepressant medications. Thank you, Satya. And in terms of mood stabilizers in borderline personality disorder, because borderline personality disorder is characterized by mood instability, do they work? Look, unfortunately, I've had very, very poor experience with that because uh, I've tried uh, mood stabilizers. The uh, sodium malprovate uh, doesn't do much at all, in my opinion. Uh, and the, the data is very, very limited to support sodium malprovate anyway. And uh, worse still is the, the, the fact that it causes significant amount of weight gain for our patients who are one third of them are uh, have obesity anyway already. Uh, and also the fact that it can it can sort of trigger polycystic ovarian syndrome, and also the risk of teratogenicity uh, in women, all of that makes uh, sodium malprovate a very unattractive option. And the data is very poor. Uh, my personal experience is that I don't use sodium malprovate at all. Uh, lithium again, I completely avoid because the risk of uh, uh, self harm and suicide is very high, and the side effects. And again, there's no data. Lamotrigine and topiramate, there is some data to support. Particularly lamotrigine uh, is, is an interesting option. Uh, lamotrigine does not cause weight gain, um, and it does help with anger and aggression as well. So when there's anger, aggression, depressive uh, symptoms, and mood instability, I tend to go for lamotrigine. Even doses uh, such as 50 milligrams can be helpful for some patients. Uh, the other option is, of course, low-dose uh, quetiapine, uh, low-dose uh, lanzipine, but they're, they're, they're not, but again, because of the side effect profile, I don't go for that. My usual option is to go for lamotrigin, uh, and the second option is uh, topiramate. Okay. And finally, the, the auditory hallucinations and the intense self-consciousness bordering on paranoia uh, social anxiety that the borderline patients often feel. Uh, what is the role of, of um, antipsychotics? When, when patients have micropsychosis, uh, which is one of the characteristics of borderline personality disorder, which is uh, when it lasts for more than a few hours, a few days, uh, I tend to prescribe, again, very low-dose antipsychotics. My first choice is usually aripiprazole. And there are a couple of papers to support that. Very low dose. I even started, you know, 2.5 or even half of 2.5. Uh, and I've rarely gone beyond 5 or 10 milligrams of aripiprazole. Second option is quetiapine again. 
from 12.5 milligrams, 25 milligrams up to about 200 milligrams. Uh, the last option is uh, olanzapin. Clozapin is an interesting uh, 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 drug for bodily impressed. There are a few patients, very handful of patients, who were prescribed clozapin by the, my other colleagues. And uh, when I was uh, younger, I took them off. I thought it is nonsense. Why clozapin for bodily impressed disorder? And those patients had very severe relapse. And, uh, and some patients who have very severe psychotic symptoms in borderline personalities or, or, or uh, uh, very severe self-mutilating behaviors. Clozapin low dose when you know, diagnosis of schizophrenia can be legally justified uh, is an helpful option. Up to 50 milligrams, even up to 50 milligrams can be helpful. But I'm not, I'm not advocating clozapin as the first choice or even the last choice. Yeah, so I, I wanted to emphasize the point you made at the beginning, which is there is no medication that changes the trajectory. No medication is a treatment. What you're describing is some symptom relief in some patients some of the time, uh, as I understand it. Yep. Uh, Joe, you, uh, I'd like you to comment on the, the so, quite a common problem that our Patients with borderline personality disorder often come with the diagnosis of bipolar disorder, particularly bipolar 2, and get medication around that. Can you, can you talk a little bit more to that, please? Yes, certainly. Um, I think, as you said, Nick, it, it is a quite a common problem. It's obviously because they both share um, dysregulation of mood. In my view, they can be, for the most part, easily or uh, readily is the better word, distinguished via careful examination of the nature and quality and um, what the triggers for the mood um, dysregulation. This is what I mean. The mood swings in borderline personality disorder are always reactive in nature, usually in response to interpersonal events, usually in response to some uh, perceived rejection or criticism or hurtful remark from someone and down goes the mood or some uh, of, of someone with BPD. And um, their high, higher mood can be in response to um, f falling in love or feeling loved and so on and so on. But the mood swings are reactive, bear that in mind. Uh, they last usually only minutes, sometimes hours, very rarely days, and they shift in again in reaction to environmental events. As Sathya was saying, he's admitted people to hospital with what looked like severe depression and goes to see them the next day and there's a total change in presentation. That is something quite characteristic of BPD. And if they're not observed over time or if a careful history is not taken about how long this change of mood lasted and what what caused, what triggered that change in mood, uh, an incorrect diagnosis can be made. Now, it's also important to say that the mood swings in bipolar disorder, including bipolar 2, obviously, are longer lasting and they're, they're much less reactive to environmental events. They tend to last days, if not weeks, rather than hours or even minutes. Um, and one other point, euthymic periods occur between the episodes of depression or hypomania in bipolar disorder. Euthymic periods are uncommon in borderline personality disorder. Borderline personality disorder is much more characterized by uh, chronic unhappiness or dysthymia, to use uh, another term. Now, Sadly, I think that people with borderline personality disorder are sometimes misdiagnosed as bipolar 2 disorder because of the stigma that continues to um, be felt in some quarters around making a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. Um, 
I'm not saying for one moment that the psychiatrist who makes a diagnosis of bipolar 2 may not believe that that's the, what the patient is suffering. Uh, and perhaps this bias is unconscious to some extent, but it does exist and misdiagnoses do occur. I think it's that's why it's so important to take that very careful history and discover, elicit um, what caused that change of mood, that uh, slippage into depression or apparent depression and so on, uh, and unhappiness. And that can readily be done with a good history. There is one other important thing. Bipolar disorder can co-occur with borderline personality disorder. So again, there can be features of both. And if and when there are features of both, both need to be diagnosed and both need to be treated concurrently. So you might, of course, uh, and would prescribe mood stabilizers for the bipolar disorder and, importantly, um, give psychological treatment for borderline personality disorder. Whenever concurrent co-occurring conditions occur with BPD, the co-occurring condition must be treated at the same time as the borderline personality disorder. Thank you, Joe. So, Satya, I also wanted to ask you a little bit about the vexed area of medication, well, the vexed area for our patients of sleep. Um, as you know, most of our patients with borderline personality disorder have difficulty with sleep. They also have often problems with irritability, impulsiveness. So those kind of, of uh, side effects, if you like, of emotional uh, instability. Uh, what is the role for medication for that, for sleep, irritability, and for impulsiveness? Uh, again, my first response, uh, Nick, is to say that uh, the, the role of medications is extremely small, uh, if at all. Um, on the contrary, again, we find that uh, when when uh, psychotherapy is successful, um, the sleep improves, the impulsivity comes down, the irritability comes down. So psychotherapy is the treatment. Uh, but in the short term, uh, if someone has having significant difficulties in sleep or impulsivity, uh, one could think in terms of the, the same medicines which I was talking to you about. Uh, one is to think in terms of, uh, I've used quatipin again in very small doses, uh, 12.5 to 25 milligrams. Uh, I asked them to break it. I think some pharmacists might not like it. So, so that's sort of a, a small dose of antipsychotics or uh, short-term benzodiazepines are probably the way to go. Uh, uh, the other interesting medicine is the omega-3 fatty acids. Uh, omega-3 fatty acids, there are a few papers to support that it can help with depression, anger, irritability uh, symptoms. Thank you. And and the very controversial area certainly was in the hunter of ECT. Uh, there was, for a while, particularly many older teenagers were being diagnosed with an affective disorder who really had borderline personality disorder and were treated here with ECT with very little benefit and a lot of controversy. So it became very controversial here, but I, I, I guess it's, a, it's a, still a controversy everywhere. Can you talk to that a little bit? Um, ECT, again, uh, I think that it has no role in the treatment of uh, borderline personality disorder per se. Uh, there, there are a uh, few case reports and few papers clearly uh, not supporting uh, ECT, and there's no evidence-based uh, for ECT in borderline personality disorder. Uh, the, the interesting question is, if someone has a melancholy depression, uh, does it is uh, an unborderline personality disorder? In that case, does ECT help? Look, I used to be this, I used to direct ECT for years. That's another interest of mine. But I could never marry these two interests, uh, bodily personality disorder and ECT. Uh, my take is that even in melancholic depressions, uh, if we can, ECT might not be the first choice. Uh, uh, having said that, if there is a psychotic depression or a severe melancholic depression that is not, and the patient is already in a, a psychotherapy program, 
and uh, this high suicide risk ECT can become a, an option. Uh, I would uh, uh, take second, third opinions before I go for ECT for people with the borderline personality disorder because of two risks. One, uh, there is uh, some evidence to say that uh, the cognitive uh, side effects, the memory disturbances are much more severe in people with borderline personality disorder. And also some patients uh, who have severe self-loathing seem to uh, consider ECT as a punishment. So we don't want to fall trap uh, to that. Uh, also, some of us get caught up with the maintenance ECT because if someone is admitted for two or three weeks, you know, one month you know, for a crisis, borderline personality disorder crisis, which looks like major depression, and if ECTs are given, then if they get well, then we are left with the dilemma of every time they have a similar crisis, uh, which do we make a diagnosis of depression and keep giving ACTs again and again and again. And then we go down to the slippery slope of maintenance ACT. So I would uh, suggest extreme caution with ACT. Uh, Joe, any further on that? Uh, only to absolutely agree. I've, um, uh, I've seen ACT uh, misused for people with borderline personality disorder, and it has never, uh, it has only caused adverse cognitive uh, effects and has not in any way, it, it's it's just not a treatment to use for BPD in my in my view. Mm. Yes, I, look, I would concur. In, in my experience over 20 years, and I've seen quite a few patients with borderline personality disorder ha have ECT, there was one in one episode, one patient with one, ep one, one course of ECT that it really did in the short term help her. I'm quite convinced of that, but that's one out of many, many, many patients where it didn't help or, as you say, created more problems. So it's, I'm very reluctant to go down that path. Thank you. Um, so the last point, uh, that I'd like you to address, Joe, if you wouldn't mind, is can usual psychiatric care not only be unhelpful or, or not efficacious, but can it make things worse for the borderline patient? And if so, what should we avoid as clinicians or be careful about? That's such an important question. First of all, I think there's no no doubt at all that usual psychiatric care can make uh, things worse for our patients if it is offered uh, via a, a clinician who appears cold or um, unresponsive or not interested in what the patient is thinking or feeling. In other words, who is not warm and caring in their attitude as in the way you were describing earlier, Nick. Uh, and I think um, we we know that Adolf Stern first identified a so-called borderline group of patients in 1938 who he was treating. He was analyst in the States and he was treating them with analysis and they became significantly worse. Hence his, his uh, publication of the, of the study that first used the term borderline states. And psychodynamic approaches with a... Uh, the psychodynamic approaches I'm all in favour of um, for, for so many conditions and including for BPD, but providing it's given in a warm, engaged, active, active therapist way. And in, that, in the absence of that, a withholding sort of silent, uh, sitting in the corner far away from the patient, analytic approach is going to make people worse. So that's one thing that makes them worse. Another thing I think is um, when we don't make any planning for breaks in the treatment or indeed for uh, ending treatment of whatever uh, kind that treatment might be, um, these patients, as we've said, are extremely sensitive to feeling rejected and abandoned and uh, that's inevitably going to happen um, with breaks in the treatment. Sometimes it can happen at the end of a session, and we need to be aware of that and, and address it with them in the, in the next session. So I think um, preparing 
um, in a thoughtful way for breaks, preparing in a thoughtful way for the ending of treatment, um, showing our patients that we understand their feelings about it and what would they like, um, what would help them, what could help them. In other words, that collaborative, cooperative approach to addressing the issues. I think just two or three other things uh, I, I want to say. One is that um, I, I feel as though overprescribing of medication sadly still happens. And um, I know Svathi and is so well aware that sometimes we see people with particularly severe BPD uh, at Spectrum who are on five different psychotropic agents when they come to us. Now, I... But I, my view of that is that clinicians are so um, troubled by the degree of distress the patient is experiencing that they prescribe one psychotropic after another and they don't stop the first one. They just add, add the next one on. And um, terrible side effects, of course, uh, obesity, heart problems, all the awful side effects. So I think we have to be very careful about um, using medication, as Safia was so clearly saying, for a short term uh, and then stopping it. But I think overprescription is a problem and that can definitely make things worse because it um, uh, it causes damage to their physical health and life uh, and helps us to understand the fact that people with BPD have on average a 20-year less longevity than the rest of the population. And some of that is to do with, I think, um, this, these habits with medication prescription. I think another thing is that we must try to repair misunderstandings in our work with our patients. They almost always occur. We may have used a word that has upset them, triggered some past trauma, some distress, some rejection or abandonment. In that we, we don't know but we what it might have been, but it is our task to ask, what just happened then? What did, did I say something that upset you? And um, endeavour to repair that disjunction in the treatment. I think that's a crucial aspect of the um, factors that work for these patients. And just one last thing. I, uh, we all know that negative feelings can arise toward people with BPD in ourselves. And um, our task is to really reflect on those feelings, own them first of all, not try and reject them or push them away under a carpet or, or react in an opposite way, but to own those feelings, reflect on them. Are they about our own stuff from our own past or are they uh, have they been evoked in the interaction with the patient, which is the usual thing, uh, via projective identification? And not to enact those feelings but to seek help from our colleagues or supervision if we need it. Um, but so many um, negative outcomes can happen when such feelings are not adequately reflected on and appropriately responded to. So I think, look, it's, it's um, very important work that we do. And uh, was it Gunderson? Safia, I forget it was Gunderson. Gunderson or Gabbard said that borderline personality disorder is the last repository of the domain of the mind in psychiatry. And I think that's such an important, crucial fact because it, it allows those of us who are interested in the mind who, uh, to, to really focus on the mind <laughs> rather than hauling out our prescription book and um, so on. Thank you, Joe. Uh, I, I wanted to highlight a couple of points and expand a couple of points that you said that I thought were really critical. Those breaks in therapy, but not just, I agree, but not just breaks in therapy, that the time when the patient is discharged from hospital uh, the time when the community mental health team is going to pick them up or discharge them from the service. Those transitions 
without adequate follow-up care or someone to follow up are very dangerous moments for clients with borderline personality disorder. Those patients are very vulnerable to feeling like nobody cares and that triggers self-harm and suicidal crises. The other point I wanted the other point I wanted to make was that community mental health teams, certainly in the Hunter, rely upon follow-up, particularly after discharge from hospital, via a telephone call. And this is rather than a face-to-face -face meeting as their standard operating procedure. And I don't know how widespread that is in the country. I actually think that's a dangerous practice. And despite the fact that I think it's dangerous, I've had trouble getting it changed in our region. Uh, Borderline patients find it very difficult to trust us, and if they can't see our eyes and they don't know us, uh, then it's even more difficult for them to trust us. So they usually just shut down and not say anything that can get them into trouble. I think it's at best uh, veering towards useless and at worst can be dangerous. The I think the follow-up phone call is okay when the, when the, when the patient with borderline personality disorder engages. But when they don't engage, we need to follow up with some kind of face-to-face -face meeting before discharging them. Yeah, that's huge. That's so important, actually, Nick. That's so important, yeah. yeah. And they need to leave the hospital with an appointment in their, in their hand, an appointment card, like a transitional object, you know, to hold on to. So, Sacha, I'd like to also address the issue of what is the role of the general psychiatrist, the one who is not doing the specific psychosocial treatments uh, or trying to use some amalgam of the common factors? Nick, uh, thanks for that question. Uh, given that 1% of the, uh, the population uh, have uh, borderline personality disorder, uh, the treatment should not be... Uh, reserved only for uh, specialist services or only a very f a few psychiatrists who specialize in psychological treatments. Uh, I believe that uh, uh, almost every psychiatrist who has an interest can provide uh, treatment uh, using the, the, the principles that we discussed today. Uh, and that is enough to contribute uh, to the recovery journey of people with uh, borderline personality disorder. Uh, even if we cannot provide a, a, a traditional uh, uh, no, a weekly session psychotherapy, we can be psychotherapeutic in our day-to-day -day, uh, interactions, uh, whether it is in the emergency department, inpatient units, or community settings. Uh, when we have our review uh, sessions, we can make use of that to teach a skill or or, or or do a validation or teach them compassionate limit setting. All those principles that we discussed today. So it's very important that we invite every one of our colleagues to take part in the recovery journey of people with borderline personality disorder. Thank you, Satya. Joe, would you like to add anything to that? I think, uh, I think that's what Sathya has said is very, very important. And that every psychiatrist who uses those common factors, who's interested, who's warm, who seems caring, who uh, is caring um, in any interaction, every interaction with someone with BPD is going to contribute to the growth of trust, which takes a long time but will happen uh, over time especially if every psychiatrist that they encounter uh, has that way of, that attitude, that way of being with them. Yeah. Yes, and I agree. And I, I go back to the Paris, uh, Joel Paris's idea that the real need for every patient with borderline personality disorder is fundamentally to be heard and to be responded to. And so even if you're doing a medication management thing as a general psychiatrist, if you can hear the emotional experience and respond in a way that apprehends and validates that, as you're doing the medication review, you will be doing some good. You don't have to do a long treatment. It's true that that will not be enough in of its own, but that will be one of the steps towards recovery. Absolutely. 
Okay, so I hope that this podcast has been helpful and we've tried to make it very clinician-friendly rather than technical and, you know, laden with studies and so forth. The key points here is that understanding the patient with borderline personality disorder, that their problems were rooted in early interpersonal uh, difficulties, particularly difficulties with caregiving, and that as caregivers, it's very easy for us to replicate those difficulties unless we're mindful. So we do need to respond in a different way to their caregivers. We need to be warm and welcoming. We need to be able to help them understand their feelings. And as Joe said, we need, when there are difficulties and disruptions, we need to repair them. Well, firstly, we need to look at our own countertransference when when our own feelings get evoked. And we need to be able to remain reflective rather than react to it and help the and model that for our patients. So I'd like to thank the, uh, both of you. Uh, thank you, Satya, for, uh, for your help, particularly around the medication ECT area, and Joe with understanding where these problems come from. I'd also like to thank David Beale, uh, who's our audio guy, who's done a wonderful job to set this up. And I'd like to thank the college for the opportunity to uh, develop this podcast. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Satya. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Nick. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Psych Matters. Feel free to share it with others and keep an eye out for future episodes. Just remember, if you are worried about your own or others' well-being, you can find Crisis Contacts on the RANZCP's Your Health in Mind website. Psych Matters is produced by the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists.